morning, everybody. You guys awake? Yeah. All right, two of us, great. Got an extra night's sleep, an hour of sleep last night, too, so everybody should be really happy and fired up. But we are getting back into our series through the book of Matthew called The Kingdom. We hit pause for the last five weeks and walked through the series on our values and talked about how Jesus is our example, which is really the, not only the foundation, but if you picture a tree, it's like the, uh, the, the tree trunk where the roots come from and all these other branches that form out of it. Our values are all things that we see Jesus modeling and uh, commanding of us. Love is our instinct. Serving is our privilege. Generosity is our norm. And last week, place is our intention. And so now we're, uh, we're coming back into Matthew, and we've been walking through this book for over two years now. And um, the, the series title is The Kingdom. The definition of the kingdom is simply the redemptive reign of Christ. And so we've been looking as Jesus has openly declared uh, that this kingdom is for the Jews. The Jews have rejected it. And when we moved out of, uh, out of Matthew chapter 11, moving into 12 and beyond, we start to see Jesus' focus shift as the offer of the kingdom is taken off the table for the Jews and is now gonna spread to the rest of the world. But as he's doing that, Jesus' focus is shifting to raising up the disciples, helping them see that he is the source of, of everything, that he's the only source. And so along the way, Jesus stops and kind of like takes the temperature of the room and goes, okay, are you guys tracking? Are you listening? Are you understanding the things that I've been telling you, the things that I've been saying? And so when we left off last, about five weeks ago, we talked about the passage where Peter famously declares, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And so Jesus is taking the, uh, the temperature of the room with the disciples, do you guys get this? And so he says to them, who do men say that I am? What are you hearing? And they talk about prophets. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And so they say, we believe you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's this really powerful moment. It's this moment where, for me, if, if I'm writing the story, if I'm making up the story, that's like the, that's like the big moment. It feels like, that moment to me felt like a, a halftime scene in a in a movie or maybe like a pregame speech. Rudy is one of my favorite sports movies and you've got the scene at the end, near the end where the coach says to the team, it's all quiet and he just comes out and you know, he's, he's, he's real, like he's just got this serious look on his face and he's like, no one comes into our house and pushes us around. And I'm like, give me a golden helmet and the, the, I'm ready to take the field for Notre Dame. Or, or in 1980, Herb Brooks with the US national hockey team, The Miracle on Ice, like if you've ever read some of, his, some of his speech, just inspirational things, he says to this group of, of guys that had just been beaten a couple of weeks earlier by the same team. I think they lost like 15 to one or something ridiculous. And he says to the guys, this group of young kids, he says, if we play, if we play them 10 times, they win nine, but not this game, not tonight. Tonight we skate with them, we stay with them, and we shut them down because we can. And it just inspired this group of college kids to go out and do what nobody thought was possible. And so that's the moment, like for me, that's how I feel right now. Peter has just said what Jesus wants them to believe. Jesus isn't like spoon feeding him and kind of leading the way. He's like, hey, what, what do you say? What do you believe? And Peter makes this declaration. And so for me, it's like the perfect moment. Like Jesus should be like, all right, everybody in, Messiah on three. And then like give the great commission right there, send them out, change the world. But what we're going to see today is that is, is that's not what happens. That from my perspective, if I'm, if I'm writing the story, if I'm Jesus, like that's where we go, but that's not what happens. When we pick it up today, we see what happens right on the heels of that. And so in Matthew 16, verse 21, it says, From then on, Jesus began to tell the disciples plainly, 
that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law, that he would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. So from this big moment with Peter, rather than sending them out and rather than releasing them, he actually tells them, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. And then he begins to talk to them about what was gonna happen next. He says, it's necessary for me to go down to Jerusalem, which for them, predictable ending. Like that's where this whole story was supposed to end. You were gonna go from uh, Messiah to king. It was gonna go from ministry to kingdom. That was gonna happen in Jerusalem. You're gonna make a triumphant entry down the Mount of Olives into the city. The people are gonna coordinate you and they're gonna establish you as the king and we're gonna bow down and worship you and we're all gonna live happily ever after. But he says, I'm not just going to Jerusalem, I'm going there to suffer. I'm going there to die. Which for the disciples was a shock, but the reality is if they had paid attention to Messianic prophecies, this was nothing new. Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53, all throughout the Psalms, it talks about how the Messiah was going to suffer, how he was going to die, that it was a necessary part of the plan. But he says, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. He says, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, but I'm gonna rise from the dead. The gospel for them and the gospel for us did not become good news until Jesus emerged from the tomb. He was just another man, he was just another guy, another Messiah, until he went into the grave and three days later emerged victorious. But the disciples didn't understand, they didn't get it. And Peter, in the next verse, verse 22, it says, but Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him. Uh, it takes a lot of courage to reprimand Jesus, but like, here goes Peter. Uh, Peter was a guy who was known to speak and then let his brain catch up later. Uh, some of us are like that, so we get it. And so he's like, all right, Jesus, get over here. And it says he began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. He says, Jesus, like, I just declared that you were the guy. Don't die. You can't die. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You are the king. This is your kingdom. Your time is now. This makes sense to me, and it makes sense to, to the rest of the disciples that this would be the obvious next step. Maybe there's a part of Peter that was thinking, man, we gave up everything to follow you. We believed in you. We are all in on who you are. And I think it's, an important, uh, it's important to understand today, Jesus was not the first person to come along and claim to be the Messiah. There were contemporaries of Jesus and even people who predated Jesus that showed up and said, I'm the one that the promised one in the Old Testament, all the prophecies, I'm the guy. And people would follow him and he would, he would have his own band of disciples and this group of followers. And then the Romans would get wind of it and they would see it as a threat to their empire and they would kill that, that self-professed Messiah. All of his disciples and any of his followers and anyone else who has left would scatter and go into hiding. And so there's probably an element of Peter that goes, you can't be just another one of the guys that have claimed that this would happen because there's a, there's a cost for me if you are. He says, we gave up everything. Jesus, if you possess absolute authority, then you have to stop this from happening. Think about what the disciples had seen and experienced as we've walked through this book. Man, Jesus healing the sick, raising the dead, exercising authority over the demonic, exercising authority over nature. Like first century Hebrew boys, they were taught and they knew the only being that possessed authority that could control nature and the demonic was the divine. 
They're saying, Jesus, you've done things that only God can do. Man, if you can feed 5,000, if you can heal a leper, which had never happened under, uh, under the Old Testament law, if you could heal a leper, if you could do what nobody else has been able to do, Man, if you, can, if you could silence nature, if you could free people from being possessed by demons, then certainly shutting down the Roman government and establishing yourself as king is within your power to do. Jesus, if you possess absolute authority, then do something. I gotta be honest with you, I'm with Peter. Like I, I get where Peter's at. Like I think if I were there, I'd have been amening Peter going, you're right, Jesus, you can't do this. And I think I would be with Peter then because I'm with Peter right now because how many things have you and I experienced in our life that we don't understand that God has allowed and we go, God, you possess the power to stop it, but yet you don't. Like God, if you possess absolute power and authority, why don't you just stop suffering in the world? If you possess absolute power and authority, like why don't you heal my loved one? I've shared this story a lot of you know. Jimmy Carroll, who's my pastor, uh, mentor, was like a father figure to me for over 20 years, died last year. And here we are a year later, and I still can't reconcile why God would take someone who was so passionate about advancing his kingdom from the earth. I just don't understand it. And I'm with Peter. Like, if you have the power to do it, then why don't you do it? So Jesus gives a little bit of insight in his response to Peter. It says, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. I'm sure that felt good for Peter. Uh, you are a dangerous trap to me. And, and let me just hit pause for a second. I think this is important for you and I to make a connection with. Peter was the guy who just declared that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, you are a small pebble. I'm the large boulder the church will be built on, but you are a small pebble. You will be one of the pillars of the early church. Peter was the guy that preached the message and thousands of people uh, repented of their sins and, and turned to Jesus, like a really powerful moment. That guy, just a few verses later, who clearly believed that Jesus was everything he said he was and could do everything he said he could do, a few verses later is being used by Satan. Let it be a reminder to me, let it be a reminder to you that as passionate as we are about Jesus and as sincere as we are in our efforts, that we, if, if Satan could influence Peter, Satan can influence us. And Peter thought he was right. Peter never in a million years thought that the response would be, you are being used by Satan. How many things that we fight about, how many tension and conflict in relationships that we are certain we're right about, and maybe it's us that's being influenced by Satan. Uh, that was free. That doesn't even have anything to do with what we're talking about. So uh, if I made you feel bad, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> So he says to him, he says, you're a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. This is where he's trying to re reset and reshape Peter's perspective. He says, you're seeing things from a finite temporal point of view. You have a limited perspective. And just like Peter, you and I, we have a limited perspective. And so we only desire results that make sense here and now, which is exactly what Peter was doing. Jesus' plan didn't work for Peter because from Peter's point of view, he couldn't see how Jesus dying was gonna benefit him. But if Jesus had said, let's go down to Jerusalem and kill some Romans, Peter would have been looking for a sword ready to go. So with his limited perspective, it didn't make sense, but if Jesus said something else that Peter liked, Peter would have been all in on that. And I know that to be true because it was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter's the guy that took a sword and, and chopped off an ear of, of one of the soldiers. Like he was ready to fight 
but he wasn't ready to submit and surrender control of all of his life to Jesus because it didn't make sense. So Jesus says you can only see from your point of view, from a human point of view. We have a limited perspective where God's perspective is unlimited. God's view is eternal, not temporal. He sees the big picture. Uh, Jen, my wife and I, we love, we love to put together puzzles. And so uh, you've got, when you, when you look at a puzzle, when you look at the picture, there's a bunch of different elements. Like if you're doing a, a, a beach scene, you've got sand, and maybe you've got some kids playing on sand. You've got umbrellas, you've got water, and then you've got boats on the water. Then you've got sky and clouds and the sun and maybe kites in the sky and birds flying. And there are all of these different things going on in the scene. And, and anytime we put a puzzle together, we start by doing the outer edges first. Uh, if you don't, I don't trust anyone who doesn't do the outer edge of a puzzle first. Uh, but then once we do that, Jen, who's more detailed than I, while I'm doing the outer edge, she's separating all of the puzzles into the different sections. So it's like, okay, uh, this, this bin is the pieces for the kids playing in the sand, and this is the boat over here, and this is the sky, and this is the, the birds, and all the umbrellas, and all these different pieces that are, are moving along. And then once we get the outer edge set, we'll kind of divide and conquer. And I'll be like, I'll, I'll take the boat. And so uh, I'll start working on the section with the boat. So I'm only looking for at the pieces that are white or whatever the color of the boat is. And, and, I, and I'm very much laser focused and I'm, I'm very much in tune with what that boat looks like. Every now and then a piece will get in from one of the other sections that maybe has similar coloring, but isn't for that. And I'll sit there and I'll look at it and I'll be like, this has to fit because it's the same color. This has to be a part of the boat, and so I'll try to move it around, and there are even times I think, well, man, if I just cut the edge of it off, like I can make it work, and, and, and so you'll go through all of these things, but, but the problem is I can't see that that piece doesn't fit because I'm only focusing on the thing that I can see. I'm only focusing on the thing that I have perspective on, and the problem is with a puzzle, if you're only looking at one thing, you're only going to see the things that you, th that you think will fit into that small piece of a much bigger puzzle. That's what happens to us in life. We have this very small, finite perspective. And we make decisions based on our finite perspective. And we want to put God into our finite perspective box and go, God, everything that you do should make sense here because based on what I'm looking at in this puzzle, this is what makes sense to me. But God steps back and goes, I don't just see the boat. I see the kids. I see the umbrellas. I see the sand, the water, the sky, the sun. And by the way, I created it all anyway. And he's got this unlimited perspective. And so Jesus says to Peter, you're looking at it from a finite perspective. And so when we do that, we're only going to desire things that benefit us in the finite, that benefits, benefit us from a temporal perspective. So then Jesus transitions and he brings them back to a place they've been many, many times. We see this all throughout the gospel. Verse 24, it says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. This is nothing new to the disciples. This is like a, another lecture from dad. Like, we've heard it before. Can we talk about something else? But Jesus brings them back here again, reminding them of the cost. He says, if anyone wants to be my follower, if anyone wants to, I'm not going to make you do it, but if you want to be my follower, you've got to understand there's some things that it's going to cost you along the way. He says it starts by you've got to give up your own way, or you could say this way, you've got to deny self. And, and this is a challenge. This is a challenge for many of us in here because we want to follow Jesus, but we still want to live for ourselves. And I am constantly trying to convince myself that I can make those two coexist. 
I'm constantly trying to convince myself that in 2,000 years, no one's ever been able to do it, but maybe I'm just a little bit smarter than they are. Like Jesus, my way and your way can, can, can link up. They, they, they can coexist. I, like I love the word and. It's the, my favorite word in the English language. Thanksgiving is coming up. And in our, in our home, we're gonna make pumpkin pie and pecan pie. And Jen's gonna ask me which one I want. And the answer is yes. I don't have to choose. It's America, right? Like, I don't have to have pumpkin pie or pecan. I'm gonna have both of them. And is the, is the greatest word in the English language. But when it comes to following Jesus, we try to convince ourselves that and is an option, but and is not an option because our way and Jesus' way are not going in the same direction. Look at what Galatians 5.17 says about it. It says, the sinful nature, or our old nature, wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Our sinful nature wants what is evil. You and I can try to convince ourselves that our old nature wants good for us and good for everybody else, but it doesn't. We can try to convince ourselves that we're smarter than Jesus, but Jesus understood the human condition and knows that our sinful nature, our old nature is only gonna think about me and is only gonna think about what I think is the best thing for me and what benefits me and makes me happy. And the Holy Spirit living in us gives us desires that are the complete opposite. Our way will lead to a self-centered form of death and his way will lead to abundant life. But we gotta choose between self and surrender because the two cannot coexist. But you and I will never experience abundant life apart from surrender to Jesus. He says, if you wanna be my follower, if you wanna follow me, you gotta, you've gotta start by giving up your own way. You've gotta start by denying self. And he says, and then you've gotta take up your cross. So we have a, a view of the cross that's kind of romanticized and maybe even a little bit sanitized. It's, it's a very much a, uh, not an accurate depiction of, of what this looked like in the first century. For us, the cross is like an image. It's this uh, beloved image of uh, forgiveness, symbol of grace, and it, it is those things, but it's something that we hang around our neck or we tattoo on our bodies, or maybe it's like the proverbial burden you carry through life like a job you hate or your lazy husband, like that's just the, the cross you gotta bear. Or like working in the, the parking lot team here in the middle of the summer, like, hey, that's just, just the cross I gotta bear. And so for us, that's what, that's what we see as taking up the cross. But in the first century to the people that were listening to him, it meant one thing and one thing only. It meant death by the most painful and humiliating means possible. Crucifixion was a torturous, brutal way to die. It would take, it would take prisoners sometimes days to slowly suffocate. And the Romans would force the convicted criminals to carry their own cross as a public declaration of complete and total surrender to the authority of the Romans. And so when Jesus said, take up your cross, this was a gut check moment for everyone that was there. What he's saying to them is, are you going to continue to follow me even if this ends badly for you? Like for many people then and many people today, we don't follow Jesus because of who he is. We follow Jesus because of what he can do. Like you think about the first century, like man, the miracle workers around, it's like, it's like going to the circus. You get to watch guy, some guy do some magic tricks. Absolutely, sign me up for that. Magic and a, and a free meal. You get food and wine you didn't pay for after. Like, yes, sign me up for that. 
Okay, watch Jesus as he would, as he would start these arguments and these debates with the religious leaders and, and humiliate them. And everyone who's seen the religious leaders lord over them, they're like, yeah, they got what's coming to them. And it's this guy, Jesus. And so they got to experience all of that. But for most of the people that were pursuing Jesus, it wasn't about who he was. It was about what he could do. And the same thing is true for us today. We've got to confront ourselves regularly with the cost. Will you and I continue to follow Jesus if it ends badly in this life? Will we say yes to Jesus when it costs us something? We've got to ask ourselves the question, what does following Jesus ever cost me? Comfort, convenience, maybe money. We talked about generosity a couple of weeks ago. We feel bad, shed some tears, walked away. Did we do anything about it? When following Jesus bumps up against the life that I want, how am I going to respond? And Jesus said, you've got to be willing to take up your cross. Taking up the cross of, of the Romans was a public declaration of complete submission and surrender to the authority of the Romans. Taking up the cross of Jesus is a public declaration of complete and total submission and surrender to the lordship of King Jesus. Are we willing to do that? What does following Jesus cost us? Because for every one of us, it should cost us something. Listen, if following Jesus has never cost you anything, then I think you have to do some serious about evaluating as to whether or not you're even following him. Because it's gonna cost you something. Taking up the cross meant that we willingly choose to follow him and we accept and embrace whatever the cross may demand of us to accomplish his mission. So you gotta deny self, you gotta take up your cross. He said, and then you gotta follow me. Following me was the submission to the process of becoming more like him. We are a reflection of who or whatever it is that we're following. Are we becoming more like Jesus? So even in our definition of disciple, we talk about that. We say a disciple is someone who's following Jesus, becoming like Jesus and helping others do the same. Am I becoming more like Jesus? How often do you and I process that question? Guys, have you asked your wives recently? Like the longest, do you see more of Jesus in me or do you see something or someone else? As we grow in our knowledge about him, it should deepen our relationship with him. And that should be evident to everyone around us. See, that's, that's, that's why we do what we're doing, walking through books of the Bible verse by verse. It's called uh, systematic exposition. That's why I like to do that, like through Matthew. And if we're gonna become like Jesus, we've gotta see how Jesus lived. But the purpose of walking through that isn't just simply to grow in knowledge. It's that our knowledge would deepen our relationship with him, which would then be evident and beneficial to everyone around us. The goal is not to become smarter. The goal is to become more like Jesus. Knowledge will happen along the way. That's a good thing. But Corinthians says, knowledge puffs up. It's love that builds up the body. The goal I have as your pastor is, is not simply to feed you. Like you may show up on Sunday morning, maybe you come here because you like that we go through verse by verse. Listen, you may show up here with your fork and knife ready to eat, but let me just tell you, you better show up with your apron when you leave ready to feed somebody else. It's not just about growing in knowledge. It's about the knowledge and the transformation that has in us that then flows through my life into the lives of the people around me.
Are we becoming more like him? And then Jesus says something interesting in verse 25 and 26. He says, if you try to hang onto your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Now, you're probably thinking, this just keeps getting worse. Like, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. Man, when someone invited me here and told me about Jesus, they told me that my life was gonna get better. And based on what you're reading and saying, it sounds like it's just gonna get worse. Man, I said yes to Jesus because I thought my marriage would be happy and my finances would get better and all my troubles would go away. And that's a comfort. It sounds good. Just don't read the Bible if you wanna hear that. Because Jesus never said that. Jesus always said it's gonna cost you something. But he says, if you try to hang on to your life, you're gonna lose it. So, so there's, an, there's an eternal component to this. The eternal component is, yes, those of us that are following Jesus, if we lose our life here, we have eternal life. We have life in eternity that Jesus has promised us and Jesus has bought for us. That's, a, that's an awesome thing. That's an awesome promise to cling to. We haven't experienced it much in North America, but in parts of the world, there are people who literally are getting their heads chopped off because they refuse to denounce their belief in Jesus. They're experiencing real persecution. Your boss telling you you can't put your Bible out, I don't know that that's on the same level. Right? You can't pray over the team meeting. Like, I, I understand you'd like to be able to, but like chopped head, you know, losing your head, losing your ability to pray. Like, like, so, so we understand the difference. So there's an eternal promise, but there's also a, a temporal promise. And it's found in understanding the word that, that Jesus is using for life. The Greek word he uses for life is the word that refers to a person's identity, like your distinct identity. See, when Jesus said, I came to give you life, not just life, but I came to give you abundant life, he wasn't just meaning life in eternity. He was meaning that we could experience abundant life right now. Yeah. In Matthew 11, we could experience rest right now in this life, in this flesh. And so the Greek word he uses for life refers to your identity. So he says, essentially, if you try to hang on to your identity, you're gonna lose it. But if you give up your identity for my sake, you'll find it. And you think about today, what are the things that we look to and we run to and we chase to find our identity? And for some of us, it's things like money and possessions, having more money, bigger houses, nicer cars. And for some of us, there's a connection even to maybe how we were raised. I know some of you, maybe you grew up dirt poor and you got made fun of. Like you, high waters are cool now, but they weren't when we were kids. And so, you know, you got made fun of for wearing high waters. You know, and, and now today, the way you live your life, you go, man, I want all of the people who used to make fun of me and laugh at me, I want them to see what I've done now. This house, these cars, this beautiful wife I've got, I want you to see all of this. And you find your identity and your worth wrapped up in what you've been able to accumulate. Or maybe it's social media. You run to social media, every post, how many likes do I get? How many comments? How many shares? How many followers do I have? Or maybe it's accomplishments, the accumulation of trophies and promotions and certificates and climbing the corporate ladder. And the reality is, whatever you and I look to to find our identity, our worth, or our value, we've got to keep running back to it in order to keep it. It's like putting gas in the car. We put gas in the car and we have a full tank, it's a great feeling for a few days. 
but we know it's not going to last. So if you run to social media, you've got to keep running back. If your identity is wrapped up in accomplishments, you've got to keep accomplishing more and more. You know, for me, one of the things that, that COVID revealed in my own life, my own brokenness, is how much my identity and worth I found in this 30-minute talk every week. For five months, when you preach it to a camera in an empty room, it just feels different. Like, there's no one on that camera that's nodding. You may be falling asleep, but it feels like you're, you're tracking with me. You may be writing down your grocery list, but it, to me, it feels like, oh, they, like they're writing stuff down that they think is going to help them. No one's saying amen or, or talking back or, or responding. Like, none of that's happening. And I found myself struggling. And I didn't know why, and I had to allow the Holy Spirit to just kind of shine, shine a light on the brokenness in my life where I had gotten to the point where I was finding my worth and my identity wrapped up in this. And so for me, every Sunday morning, this became, yes, about glorifying him, but there was the part of brokenness in me that was like, this is about glorifying you, but this is also about filling my tank. So Jesus says, you can continue to chase after the temporal things to give you and I what we believe to be peace and fulfillment, and we'll continue to come up empty, or we can choose the path of surrender. We can surrender control of all of life to him and find the abundant life that he promised right now. It's a choice for every one of us. It's a choice we get to make. Follow him or live for self. You know, it's not an easy decision. Like, I mean, the decision to, to live for self yields immediate results. And isn't that how we're wired in our culture today? And everything's got to be faster. Everything's got to be immediate. We used to take, we used to take uh, an hour to cook an, a potato. Now we, it can cook for six minutes in the microwave, and we're still standing around tapping our fingers going, how soon can this get done? We want what we want and we want it now. And the path of self promises that. But surrender may not promise immediate results, but the other side of surrender promises something better. It promises abundant life. Now I think if the disciples were here today, they would tell us that following Jesus wasn't, wasn't easy. They, they didn't get it. I mean, think about it. They didn't get it right here when Peter says, Jesus, this can't happen. They didn't even get it a few months later when Jesus was dying on the cross. You had one that betrayed him, one that denied him, and the rest deserted him. They didn't get it then, but eventually they got it. And eventually it was those same guys who were willing to be mocked, imprisoned, beaten, and eventually most of them died for their faith. And it was those same guys that said things like this. They said the gain far outweighs the cost. Paul said that we were given the privilege to suffer for Christ. We just sang about it in Christ Be Magnified, that we would join him in his suffering. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles were imprisoned and nearly killed. But instead they were, it says, but instead they were flogged and released. I'm sure being flogged was a great feeling. But they're released and when they are, that says they went away from there rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. Listen to me this morning, following Jesus, it's not easy. Some days it is. A lot of days there are, there are challenges, there are questions we can't answer. 
there are things that the cross demands of us that we're not willing to give up. And while following Jesus isn't easy, I can promise you the cost of following him is worth it because of what we stand to gain. The abundant life that every one of us is looking for right now is not found in anything this world has to offer. It's found in choosing the path that few will ever take. It's found in following the the way, the cross of Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about following him. Man, this morning, maybe you're here and you've never said yes to Jesus' offer of eternal life. Maybe you've been coming to Generation for a while. Maybe this is your first time here. What what we believe about Jesus is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, which is what Peter declared. That means that Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose again to pay for my sins, to pay for your sins, to reconcile us back to God. That our sin created separation from him, and Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection atones for that, pays the price so that we could be reconciled to God. And the Bible teaches that if we believe that to be true and if we confess it with our mouth, do you believe that Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose again to pay for your sins? Man, if you believe that to be true, then in your own words, you pray and you tell him something like this. You don't have to repeat after me. You, you can, but you tell him something like this in your own words. God, I believe my sin created separation from you. And I believe the person work of Jesus is the only thing that could bring me back to you. I believe he lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again to pay for my sins, to reconcile me back to you. Right now, the best I know how, I give my life to you. And then followers of Jesus, the question this morning is about the cost. We'll follow him when everything's good. We'll celebrate his sovereignty when everything's going the way we want it to go. But will we, will we continue to follow him when it doesn't work out according to our plan? Will we continue to follow him if it, if it ends badly? cost us something. Man, I want to tell you this morning that he is worth it. He is worth the cost. There's nothing in this world that can offer compared to the value and the joy of knowing him. Christ is all we need. Christ is enough. Christ is more than enough. Just stand with me. Jesus, right now, We magnify you. We glorify you. We deny self. We take up our cross. And we follow you. We live our lives in joyful submission under the lordship of King Jesus. This is your kingdom. You are our king. We bow to none other but you. We surrender control of our lives to none but you. Because you're worth it. Pray it.